Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Take aim and save on inheritance tax. We hear how older investors are filling their ices with shares in AIM-listed companies in order to mitigate IHT. Investors in AstraZeneca may be feeling a little poorly after shares plunged last week. Veteran investor Terry Smith joins me to discuss. And when was the last time you repaired something? We examine the phenomenon of restart parties designed to save you money and save the planet. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast on personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, and I'll be giving you this week's money news in downloadable form. Firstly, shares in the pharmaceutical giant AstraZeneca slumped 15% in a single day last week after a big drug trial setback, for a time causing the share price to trade £12 below the spurned £55 per share takeover offer from Pfizer three years ago. They have recovered a little bit since then, but this trial is not Astra's only problem, according to Terry Smith, the founder and chief executive of Fundsmith, who regular FT Money readers will know has been a long-term sceptic about both the company and the wider pharma sector at large. Welcome, Terry. Morning. So you argue in your FT Money column this week that AstraZeneca is beginning to look a lot like Tesco, in terms of the numbers on its balance sheet at least. Tell us why. Yes, I mean, I wrote an article about AstraZeneca previously for you, but I also wrote one about Tesco a bit before Tesco went in for its uh, near-terminal decline. And there are some similarities between them, I think. One of them is that they've both gone in for really quite creative accounting, which is always something that I'm interested in and I think uh, a warning sign. In the case of AstraZeneca, this use of core earnings that excludes lots of costs from the earnings. And the other thing is when you look at the, uh, something other than the earnings, and I think an awful lot of investors are mesmerized by looking at earnings per share. If you look at the return on capital employed, which, don't take my word for it, is something that Warren Buffett says is the, the single most important measure of company performance. In both Tesco's case and AstraZeneca's case, it's been in a very big decline over the years. In AstraZeneca's case, I think it, it peaked at about 40% at one point and is now down to a fairly average 11, has been as low as 5. Uh, in Tesco's case, it peaked at about 20. Uh, through retail is not a particularly high return sector. And again, half roughly, because both of them splurged lots of capital. In the case of Tesco, on their expansions into places like the US and China, which had very poor, in fact, negative returns, losses on it. And similarly, in AstraZeneca, they've uh, they basically spent an awful lot in terms of the amount of capital. They've doubled the amount of capital employed in the last few years with things like the Medimmune uh, acquisition, which they did in 2007, which have produced little or no return. Now, just for the benefit of some of our younger listeners, 
this measure, return on capital employed, ROCE, you will see written in, in company documents. Tell us why, as an investor, this is your go-to measure when it comes to showing you the underlying health of a company's finances. Sure, I don't think it's only for the benefit of younger readers. There may be some younger readers who are well familiar with it, I think. But anyway, That's true. For, whichever, for whichever readers we need to Called out for being to. ageist. <laughs> exactly, we're being ageist. We must be ageist. I'm very against being ageist <laughs> for obvious reasons. And uh, the uh, return on capital employed, companies are just like us. If you borrowed money from your bank at, say, 5%, mm-hmm. and you invested it in my fund and I made you 20% per annum, you would become richer. I hope we can agree that. If you borrowed it at 5%, you invested in my fund, and I produced, only produced a 2.5% return, you'd become poorer over time, as well as quite annoyed, I would imagine. Companies are the same. They have a cost of capital, the cost at which they can raise debt and equity. And if they make returns which are significantly above that, the company will become worth more over time. And if they make returns which are significantly below their cost of capital, it will become worth less over time. Now, I think one of the reasons that people don't use return on capital probably as much as they should, and I hope that simple explanation just tells you why it's something to look at, Mm. is because the cost of capital in a company is always a guess. We know the cost of debt. We can work out what they pay their bank. But the cost of equity is a guess based upon looking at the, the history of the company's returns and its relationship to the, to the market. And because it's a guess, I think a lot of people shy away from using it. It doesn't matter. It's better to be approximately right than to be precisely wrong. In other words, the fact that it's a guess, I always say, let's just start with 10% of the cost of, the cost of capital, shall we? Yeah, well. it's a good round number. <laughs> and if the company's making below that, then it's problematic. And if it's making above that, well, good. Well, a very clear explanation. Better understanding for me, certainly, mm. as, even as the presenter, mm. after hearing you explain and, it. In, and in and for readers terms. of all ages, I hope. Exactly, exactly. I've, I've, off, off microphone, I've, I've, I've slapped my wrist. Um, but <laughs> let's look back at what happened to Tesco, um, which obviously readers will be familiar with. Looking at the trajectory for that share, what could the future have in store for investors in AstraZeneca, perhaps? Well, I mean, I don't know. It's not a company that I invest in or would invest in, so I don't spend an overly large amount of time trying to speculate about what will happen in the future. I'm, I'm absolutely clear that it's, it's got a very problematic past here. Clearly, the thing which I think will worry investors most of going forward is the dividend. It's yeah. got nearly a 5% dividend yield. Obviously, a lot of people do hold it for income. And I guess that dividend, like it was in Tesco's, must now be in danger of being cut or passed because the dividend is only covered just over one time by the earnings at the moment. And clearly the earnings progression is in doubt. And I would even go so far as to say, as I alluded to in my earlier answer, that I'm not sure the earnings are real in the sense that they're a, a, a somewhat a product of, uh, of accounting sort of sleight of hand, if you like. And so I think that dividend is in some danger. The great irony of that is this, however, that a company that's, that's actually allocated capital as poorly as AstraZeneca appears to have in recent years, the best thing that it can do for investors actually is to give them their money back and let's, let them pace it in a company which does allocate company property, uh, capital property. But I think in the, uh, they may not have the luxury of maintaining this dividend. Well, thanks very much there to Terry Smith, the founder and chief executive of Fundsmith. You can read his column now on ft.com slash money and on our company's page, read all of the latest on both AstraZeneca and Tesco. This weekend marks the four-year anniversary of shares traded on London's alternative investment market, that's AIM for short, being allowed to be held within stocks and shares ISAs. 
The tax-efficient wrapper has a double benefit for AIM shares, many of which benefit from a valuable inheritance tax relief, and older investors are increasingly cottoning on. Joining me now to discuss is David Stevenson, the FT's adventurous investor columnist who's written all about the issue this week. Welcome, David. Hello, Claire. It seems slightly incongruous that older investors, people who can ill afford to take big risks with their capital, are turning to AIM, which has historically been quite a volatile place for your money. Yes, two things to say about that. One of which is that AIM is less volatile than it used to be. AIM used to be a market full of slightly, being brutally honest, some quite dodgy stocks in many cases, which are very volatile. And it's got a bit better. There's lots more established companies in there. And therefore, it's behaving much more like a kind of typical small to mid-cap market. But of course, the real reason why you've got a lot of older investors looking at it is not because of that, because of a tax relief. And the crucial tax relief is, is that it's very good for IHT, inheritance tax, or the death tax, as some people call it. And it basically, because some of the firms, not all, not all, not all by any stretch of the imagination, some of the firms on AIM benefit from something called the BPR. And the BPR, basically, the fundamental bottom line is, if you've got shares in the firm in the BPR and they're quoted on AIM, you can pass them on if through your ITA free of IHT to, 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 to your, to your and, other and, half. And BPR, we should explain, stands yeah. for Business, uh, business Property, Property Relief. Relief. Doesn't really uh, make any sense, but... The reason that this was introduced as a tax break on AIM shares is, I believe, because many of them were originally family firms. Yeah. I mean, the the BPR was introduced by Labour government in the 1970s for a very good reason, which is that a lot of small family businesses, or actually medium-sized family businesses, were running into the inheritance tax problem. Founder died, family took over, and they got hit with a big AHT bill. Similar kind of story for farmers. They have their own specific agricultural relief. And so it started off for very good reasons. What's actually happened is a lot of those small family firms have become bigger family firms and ended up becoming, they might have benefited, say, from EIS in the past, which is another tax relief, and then they might have got bigger and bigger, and they might have gone on to a stock market like AIM. And they're probably still family-run firms, but they've carried on the BPR relief. And the BPR relief means that although they're on AIM, technically speaking, AIM is a private market. The main market is the main market, which is where the big FTSE 100 companies are. AIM is, technically speaking, a venture market, a private market. And therefore, these are still private companies under the HMRC definition. They still carry this BPR relief. And there's no, you know, people are set up for a really good reason. There are people who question whether or not, you know, a company that's worth possibly hundreds of millions on AIM should still benefit from BPR, but that's a different question. Well, that's a very personal point mm. which you come to in your article. I mean, it's mm. impossible to calculate how much inheritance tax yeah. private investors are potentially yeah. mitigating through the use of business property relief on AIM shares. But certainly, since the ISA rules changed in particular, all of the evidence you've heard is that people are people are herding into these products. So you've spoken to a few people who fear that it's becoming mm. so popular the tax break could be vulnerable at a future budget. Well, so tax campaigners and tax reformers, people like Richard Murphy, who does a lot of work and has influenced the uh, Labour Party's thinking in this area, you know, they, they, it's, it's pretty obvious to them what's going on here, which is a, it's, a, it's a tax relief brought in originally for perfectly sensible reasons, which has now expanded its coverage and is effectively being used as a way of doing a, filling the capital gap. The capital gap is well-known, for businesses, usually in market value, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 50 million pounds, find it quite difficult to raise capital sometimes. Banks don't want to lend to them. So they go to the markets, and uh, this tax relief helps them out. Now, of course, it hasn't escaped the attention of tax relief and a tax simplification brigade that actually this could turn into quite a big freebie. We already know that ISAs are effectively costing the Treasury billions of pounds a year, um, and they've been going for many years. 
So it's not an unreasonable presumption. No one has the figures, but they must be costing probably, I would guess, tens of millions possibly. And at a time of austerity, when lots of other things are being cut back, you know, you could well imagine the Treasury looking at the long list of, of reliefs out there. And this wouldn't be the only one. I mean, a similar kind of thing with agricultural relief. We know that the, the Treasury has been looking at in the past. Similar kind of thing, actually, set up for family businesses that has thus been used by investment houses as, as a structure. It wouldn't be a terrible surprise if it's found its way onto a, a list of things that the Treasury looks at when it comes to simplification and tightening up the loopholes. There's no sign that, that it is on the list, so it's very much still open. And if you've got a situation where you think this would benefit from it, definitely, you know, you should look at it, have to think about it, and talk to advisors about it. It's probably around for a good few more years yet, but I'd be astonished if somebody didn't turn their attention to it in the next five, ten years. Well, let's hope Brexit uh, keeps, them, keeps them busy. So just finally, before you go, your piece looks at the number of specialist AIM ISA funds that mm. have been set up over the past four years to make it easier to yep. establish or, and or transfer an ISA portfolio. But briefly give us the key pluses and minuses of these funds. Well, as you'd expect, these are, you know, if you're going to pick smaller businesses on a venture market, which is AIM, you do need to hire a professional manager. And bear in mind, these are all discretionary portfolios. So they're, they're, they're closer in style and structure to the old stockbroking discretionary model. So that requires a lot more labor-intensive effort. Basically, you have to employ somebody to go and put together the fund, and they have to do all the due diligence. And they have to make sure that they qualify for the BPR? That's the important bit, Claire, yes. They have to make sure, because even if you talk to successful fund managers operating in the AIM space, they don't always know if their stocks in AIM are BPR related. I was talking to Gervais Williams, who's very established in that market, and he doesn't know whether or not all the stocks in his AIM portfolio are BPR. So it does require a bit of hard work. But the problem with the, that model is that is that those, that extra effort costs money and that you, people charge that in fees. And so you should expect the fees from these kind of portfolio services to be much higher. The other thing I think you should watch out for as well is that you are basically buying into a volatile portfolio. And no matter how good the stock pickers are in terms of picking, you know, good quality balance sheet companies, you know, family-run companies with growing profits, their shares, their equities, and economists like to call that risk ca- assets, risk capital. The words risk is important there. They do go up and down a lot. And whilst it's true that small caps, smaller capitalized companies over the long term have produced fantastic results, and they have in the past, that has usually been at the expense of a lot of volatility. So if the market takes a tumble, you should absolutely expect AIM stocks to take a tumble with them and probably be much more volatile on the downside than, say, FTSE 100 companies. So there is a lot of risk. This is not a product to, to invest in if you need to get access to that money in three or four or five years' time. And, but these aren't, to be fair, marketed as these. These are marketed as long-term tax planning products that allow you to be able to mitigate IHT and that's kind of a 5 to 10 to 15 year time horizon. Yeah, certainly and you have to in fact hold them for more than two years for the inheritance tax um, relief to kick in. That's a crucial point Claire, yeah, absolutely because the way BPR was set up you have to be there for two years for it to kick in and as I said there's an even more important wrinkle which is sometimes people don't even know whether or not those stocks they've got in their own portfolio are BPR uh, allowable until the person dies, <laughs> I, the HMRC basically makes the adjudication at the point of, 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 of death. And therefore, it's no absolute guarantee that every single stock that you think is BPR allowable is actually in a portfolio. But the portfolio managers clearly go to great efforts to make sure that they are.
Well, thanks very much there to David Stevenson, FT Money's adventurous investor. You can read his article, Taking Aim at Inheritance Tax Savings, in the FT Weekend newspaper this weekend, or online now at ft.com slash money. When was the last time you repaired something? In our consumer-driven culture, if things go wrong, our knee-jerk response is often buy a new one. Gadgets and electrical items are particularly prone to going wrong, but organisations around the world are urging consumers to empower themselves grab a screwdriver and get fixing. Joining me now to discuss is Dave Lukes. He's a super fixer with the Restart Project, a London-based social enterprise that holds restart parties to encourage people to cherish, not chuck out, their broken stuff. Welcome, Dave. Hello. So tell us what happens at a typical restart party. Okay, we generally hold these at whatever venues we can find, community halls, sometimes in parks under marquees, any venue really. And what happens is people come along with their devices which presumably aren't working in some way or they can't get them to work or whatever, and one of our fixers helps them to fix it. Now, these are often things that would be destined for, for the scrap heap or even a local recycling depot. The event that I came to that you ran in Hackney, there were people who were bringing along printers, laptops. Mm-hmm. I think we had a coffee grinder where the, yeah. the motor had stopped working. These are very, very common items. A fan, record players you're getting quite a lot as well. Oh, yeah. I think there are lots of different motivations. Saving money, obviously. Saving the environment for some of us is important too. And also, let's call it habit. If you've got a really nice device that works really well, why should you be forced to change that for something else? At one of our parties, we had a very nice chap who had a mobile phone, which he was very used to. And he kept it going long past when other people might have thrown it away. And why? Because he wanted to, because it was his favourite phone. He was familiar with it. He didn't want to have to transfer across all his contacts and other stuff. So why should he be forced to upgrade when he can just keep using the same device? Now, when people bring along their broken stuff, they don't just leave it with you, as lovely as you are, for you to fix (laughs) and come and pick up later. You actually make them pick up the screwdriver oh, yes. with your instruction. Yes. The idea is that it's it's a cooperative process. We learn how to repair stuff. Okay. In some cases, I'll learn new things as well because it'll be a device I've not seen before. But more importantly is we encourage people to get over the fear of repair because that's one of the biggest problems is people are scared. They think something terrible will happen if they open up their laptop, coffee grinder, whatever, and it won't. You know, If something isn't working, what's the worst that can happen? Well, it doesn't work when you finish, so you're no worse off. So it never does any harm to try and repair something. And okay? generally, are you able to fix the stuff that people bring along? Mm, I would say it's about 50-50. And it varies a lot because in some cases we can say, well, we can't repair it because you need a spare part, but here's where you can find one. And some, quite often now, people will come along and say, I was at one of your other restart parties. They say, get this part, I've got this part, so can we fit it now? Yeah. That's interesting. But the right to repair, as it's being called, is becoming a, a global movement. I mean, I've mentioned oh, yes. this iFixit website in America in my column this week, which is very campaigning. <laughs> they get very cross that big companies hide behind intellectual property when it comes to making repair manuals freely available online or even the fact that you can't buy spare parts for certain electrical items because the manufacturers kind of want to funnel you into to to buying a new one but it is becoming an international movement now oh very much so yeah the repair cafe movement in holland uh, which has gone international the restart project is going international now 
and many other organisations doing the same kind of thing. And also, a quick bit of history here, the Restart Project came out of people seeing that in Africa, people repair things out of necessity. Mm. Yeah, It wasn't yeah, a convenience and environmental thing. It was, well, if you break it, it doesn't work. You haven't got the money or maybe the availability of a new item. So, yeah, it comes from a lot of different places. And yes, in America, you also have this wonderful movement, the right to repair, which is again going global. And I don't know if you've seen this, but the EU recently has started passing directives is to encourage people and not so much directives, um, various, I think it's, can't remember what it's called. Um, they're encouraging environmental criteria for goods, and that will eventually include recyclability, repair, etc., etc. So even the EU may eventually come out with a right to repair bill. Well, thanks very much there to Dave Lukes of the Restart Project. You can search for restart parties in your local area or even find out how to organise one at therestartproject.org and read my column about it this week in the money section of FT Weekend or online now at ft.com slash money. That's all from The Money Show this week. If you've got a story you'd like the FT Money team to follow up or a question to pose to our team of financial experts, then get in touch. Our email address is money at ft.com. Tweet us at ftmoney or comment on our articles online at ft.com slash money. We'll be back next Thursday. At the- Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Usual time. Goodbye.